we've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Rarika Reamer for October 17th, 2023. Glorianne Bryant is with us today to provide an insider's perspective on the American Hospital Association's ICD-10 Coding Clinic. Lori Johnson delivers more coding news. Marie Steinbuck reports on the social determinants of health. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who's pitching a new spin-off series from the TV show Breaking Bad, entitled Better Call Buck, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the 573rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck and everybody. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here, too. You were missed last week. And, of course, as you heard Clark Anthony announce, Gloria Ann Bryant's going to be joining us later today. She's going to be reporting on the coding clinic. And your thoughts on the coding clinic, Erica? I, like everyone else, am looking forward to Gloria Ann's insights. Thank you. Indeed. So uh, we're looking forward to your talk back. What's it going to be this morning? Chuck, I'm starting a two-part series on inpatient versus outpatient surgery. Wow. Excellent topic, Oregon. We look forward to hearing your talk back this morning. We have a lot of news to report. Of course, we begin, as we usually do, with Tim Powell. Tim is a Talk 10 Tuesday news test. Thanks, Chuck. And today I'm going to be talking about the sad story of nursing salaries in the United States. In the U.S., nursing is a diverse field with various types and roles. And so here's a breakdown of the main types of nurses and their roles in hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. We have certified nursing assistants or CNAs. They assist patients with basic care such as bathing, feeding, and moving. They typically work under the supervision of registered nurses. Then we have licensed practical nurses or licensed vocational nurses, nurses. These nurses provide basic nursing care, administer medications, and monitor patients. Their education typically consists of a year-long program. And then last, we have registered nurses, and RNs are graduates of either an associate degree in nursing or a bachelor's of science in nursing program, and they can perform a variety of tasks, including assessments, development care plans, and direct patient care. So most of the time, we focus on the pay of RNs, and in my home state of Florida, according to Indeed.com, the average wage for RNs is $37.17 an hour and ranges anywhere from $25 to $56 an hour. Again, according to Indeed, the average LPN wage is $29.16, but it can go as low as $17 an hour. While the median salary for a CNA is $15 per hour in Florida, according to ZipRecruiter, the salary can go as low as $8.39 an hour. In recent years, the discussion surrounding a living wage has grown in importance. And it's astonishing to see the professions as essential as registered nurses, licensed practical nurses and certified nursing assistants in Florida are facing wage issues. And while the upper echelons of their pay scales may seem comfortable, the lower end, particularly for LPNs and CNAs, is alarmingly close to or even below the federal minimum wage. Take CNAs, for example. An hourly rate of $8.39 is shockingly low for a professional profession that requires specialized training, is emotional taxing, and holds significant amount of responsibility. What's more disconcerting, this wage is competitive with entry-level jobs in the fast food industry, roles which typically require less or no training and less responsibility. The disparity suggests a troubling undervaluing of healthcare professionals. While fast food jobs are essential and workers in every industry deserve a living wage, it's hard to reconcile that someone assisting in patient care, often in intimate and challenging circumstances, can earn as much or even less than someone making a fast food hamburger. If we genuinely value the 
the well-being of our citizens and professionals caring for them, our wage structures need a thorough reevaluation. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Wow. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert, and he's the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. Now's the time for the Talk Tuesday Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Welcome back, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Today, I wanted to talk about the relationship between HIM and utilization review and or case management. These functions are part of the revenue cycle, but I rarely see them interacting. I think that UR case management can be helpful to HIM and vice versa. My first hospital position in HIM was at a teaching hospital. The UR case management department was next door and we did a lot of informal communication. This was just before the beginning of DRGs. These two departments should chat about the collection of social determinants of health data. The discussion topics include who is collecting the data, where is it going to be documented, and which data should be coded. Payers have initiatives around social determinants of health, and it should be determined what initiatives are important for the facility to collect information. Another area of collaboration is medical necessity. Frequently, UR and case management will get pre-authorization for procedures. It is important for the coders to be aware what CPT code was pre-authorized. The coders can make UR or case management aware if a different procedure was performed. A new authorization may be needed, which would avoid a denial, and this way you can work proactively. The coders may also utilize the clinical expertise of UR and case management. There are times as a coder, you need some clinical input to your coding. So again, this resource could be valuable. I think that it is important to have regular touch-based meetings between UR and case management. Talk about documentation trends change and changes in medical practice. It is another way to informally communicate with the medical staff and keeping your finger on the pulse of hospital activity. UR and case management and HIM are two valuable revenue cycle departments and they can really help each other. And with that, back to you, Erica. Yeah, Tiffany and I talk about UR and CDI working together all the time. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Now you can have access to important guidance on each of the American Hospital Association's 2023 ICD-10 CMPCS quarterly coding clinics. Each on-demand webcast features plenty of information on guidelines and codes that are available shortly after each publication. Led by nationally recognized coding expert Glorianne Bryant, you will learn the latest coding guidance updates in an easy-to-access format for the first, second, and third quarters. This is vital information, available on demand and designed to help ensure you have the information you need to master current ICD-10 CMPCS coding requirements and guidelines. Register now to receive on-demand recaps of the coding clinics, first, second, and third quarter. It's the 2023 
ICD-10 CMPCS Coding Clinic webcast series, now available on demand. Listen and learn at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday report on the social determinants of health is our good friend Marie Steinbuck. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to our listeners. This morning, I'm going to talk about the inpatient-only list and the role utilization review can play. While there have been attempts to phase out the IPO list, the reality is that it continues to be a significant factor in healthcare reimbursement. In today's segment, we will discuss the complexities of the IPO list. The IPO list comprises of services primarily surgical that are designated as requiring inpatient care due to the nature of the procedure, the patient's underlying physical condition, or the need for extended post-operative recovery time. This designation is critical as Medicare and other payers reimburse and or may deny these procedures differently depending on their recognition of the IPO list. In April 2023, CMS released CMS 4201-F, which is now commonly known as the Medicare Advantage Final Rule, that Medicare Advantage plans must adhere to the IPO list, although this is not necessarily the case for commercial and managed Medicaid plans, which still have autonomy per their provider guidelines and hospital contracts to dictate their stance on the IPO list, unless otherwise state mandated. Regardless of the payer, getting it wrong can be significant to the hospital bottom line as payers may deny in full an incorrect authorization, such as completing an inpatient-only procedure in an outpatient setting of the hospital and billing the claim under an outpatient designation. This is where utilization review can collaborate with CDI, as Erica stated, coding and the revenue cycle to ensure the status is correct upfront. Typically, the surgical process passes through many departments, Regardless of the owner, there are some clear steps that need to occur to ensure successful capture of IPO procedures. Utilization review should be participating in access management by reviewing scheduled surgeries two to three days prior in collaboration with the scheduling and authorization teams to make sure the IPO procedure receives not only a pre-scheduled inpatient-only order in the medical record, but the payer authorization also matches the appropriate level of care. Understanding that plans change in the operating room, documentation should be reviewed either by UR and or the CDI team to evaluate for any changes that may have potentially adjusted an outpatient procedure to an inpatient procedure, which would require an updated level of care order to be obtained. Partnership with surgeon offices is important to ensure accuracy of IPO procedures and the authorization process. It is also important to understand that the pre-auth function is typically completed by medical assistants and or surgery schedulers. Consideration should be given to maximize technology and hardwire processes, such as adding hard stops in the EMR, notifying the user that this is an IPO procedure. Hospitals should also consider custom forms that your top surgeon offices can utilize to clearly identify which surgeries they perform that are included on the IPO list. Finally, review your denials data with your revenue cycle and billing team. Which IPO procedures were missed? What happened in the case and which physician groups performed the procedure? 
These pieces will provide key details in payer practices and lead the team upstream to work out any missteps that occurred in the process. The financial implications of IPO procedures are significant, underscoring the importance of precise billing and adherence to regulatory requirements. Staying informed about the ever-evolving healthcare landscape is critical as political and regulatory changes can impact reimbursement policies and ultimately affect the hospital's bottom line. Thank you. And now back to you, Erica. Thanks, Marie. That was Marie Steinbeck Cormican. Marie was substituting this morning for Tiffany Ferguson. They are both with Phoenix Medical Management. You know, our special guest would be no stranger to any of you who follow us on Talking Tuesday and ICD 10 Monitor. She's an accomplished webcast leader and currently has an on-demand webcast on the AHA Quarterly Coding Clinics. And she joins us today to share an insider's perspective on the coding clinic. So won't you please welcome Glorianne Bryant. Good morning, Glorianne. And Glorianne, welcome back to the broadcast. Hello, Chuck, and thank you. Thank you for everyone for being here this morning. It's great to be back. My topic this morning is about the AHA Coding Clinic. I have to say upfront, this publication to me personally, after 40 years in this profession, is a must read. I can't support it more by saying you have to be sure to read this quarterly publication. For any coding professional, CDI professional, documentation, clinical data, it is something that you find very valuable and helpful, along with the coding conventions and, of course, the official guidelines. This coding clinic publication provides guidance that is foundational and a resource to accurate coding. The third quarter issue, which I have a webinar that I put together for you all, in particular covers many ICD-10-CM topics, including the coding of cannabis use when it is prescribed for chronic pain, subcapsular hematoma, epidural hematoma coding, and then there are some really interesting PCS procedure guidance for coding of hemospray, JADA, HeroGraft, and NAVA, to mention just a few. So a lot of acronyms and words there. Now, I'll share with you one scenario that is in there that's helpful and very interesting is when we have a patient with AKI and they have a non-traumatic renal subcapsular hematoma patient comes to the emergency room, say, and they have right flank pain, and they have a CT scan, which shows they have a right renal subcapsular hematoma. The patient has no knowledge of any trauma or injury. Thus, for this situation, how would we code that? Well, it tells us that we would use an N28.08 ICD-10 code and an N17.9 acute kidney failure in that, in that order. And that's an important guidance that I'm sure will be valuable. Also, they discuss cervical epidural hematoma and the correct coding assignment of that particular condition. In an ICD-10-CM, we would assign a G9519 code, other vascular myelopathies for that. And often you might see that with a procedure. Now, one question in there that was kind of interesting was how would you code a situation where a bra strap creates grooves in the shoulder 
And they say that we really would not report that, this bra strap grooving. So I thought that was interesting for no-code assignment for that situation. When we move from the diagnosis side to the PCS or procedure side for inpatient procedure coding in that third quarter, that HERO I mentioned is a thrombectomy. And that HERO stands for hemodialysis reliable outflow. And this is a graph that is fully subcutaneous type system that provides reliable continuous blood flow directing from a target artery to the central venous system. And that HERO, there is some information on the internet on that. You can look at that information. The question was around, well, what kind of procedure is this? And that's an extirpation. And if you visit Cryolife, C-R-Y-O-L-I-F-E website, you can watch a video, which was very interesting. And another interesting procedure is JADA, J-A-D-A. And this procedure is used when we have postpartum bleeding. So it's controlling of the bleeding. And it is a, a device that will go in and inserted into the uterus. There is draining being done of the accumulated blood. And so there was a question, well, is it a drainage? And actually they advised, no, it's control, control of the bleeding. Now to mention this third quarter, there's lots of information to get you excited about. The fourth quarter has already been released. And of course they do the ICD-10 fiscal year 2024 updates for both CM and PCS. And there is a section not related to the new codes on serosal tears. And I really encourage you to read that. I had submitted myself three case examples. I'm glad to see this new guidance in there. Um, I think it'll be valuable to you all. You can submit your own question to Coding Clinic online. It is free. And I think it's our duty, responsibility, and I strongly advocate that we do that send these questions in to help others, not only ourselves, but others as well, improve the coding accuracy. Discuss the coding clinic with your coding staff and your CDI staff, collaborate. There's always something to learn from coding clinic. And now back to you, Erica. Thanks, Glorianne. And there's always a new one coming out. I haven't even read the fourth quarter yet. So I'm looking forward to looking at the serosal tear piece. Thanks for letting us know about it. That was nationally recognized independent coding and CDI consultant, Glorianne Bryant. It's no surprise, coders are not doctors, yet they're expected to understand anatomy or why procedures are performed, and of course, the documentation of the procedure. Any knowledge gap can undermine your revenue and compliance objectives. It is especially true for spinal procedures, which require a high degree of coding specificity and accuracy. And spinal procedures are inherently difficult for non-clinicians to fully comprehend. Here's good news. During an upcoming two-part ICD-10 Monitor webcast series, Kim Felix will walk you through ICD-10, PCS, and CPT coding for several commonly performed spinal procedures. Besides learning about spinal anatomy, you'll gain confidence leading to a boost in coding productivity while supporting your drive to capture the optimal fully compliant reimbursement. Part 1 of this webcast series is October 26th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore. 
here now with our very popular segment of Talk Ten Tuesdays called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thank you, Chuck. Um, it's not going to be a coincidence that Marie and I are talking about a similar um, topic from a little bit of a different perspective. We sort of planned it that way. Today, I'm going to be talking about choosing the correct status for surgical procedures. And next week, I think I'm going to try to talk about the documentation and coding of it, which is kind of interesting. There's a list for Medicare patients called the inpatient-only list, IPO list. If an operation is on the list, the patient needs to be an inpatient. If you read my article this morning, there's going to be a little bit of an edit sometime, probably later today or tomorrow, because Ron Hirsch read it and had a comment um, for an edit. So if the operation is on the list, the patient needs to be an inpatient, even if they don't stay a single midnight, and they may have started out as an outpatient, but they may end up getting converted and admitted as an inpatient, either because somebody realized, wait a minute, this is on the IPO list, or maybe during the operation, as Marie was talking about, during the operation, something else had to be done and it ended up converting it into an inpatient only. So they end up getting admitted as inpatient and the claim gets submitted and paid. Now, commercial payers do not have to follow the IPO list, but many do. You need to check your contract. And Medicare Advantage soon will have to follow it as well, but they don't, um, they haven't up until um, now. So don't let your providers get mixed up and think that they have to keep the patient for two midnights. One midnight, two midnights, the patient can be discharged from the recovery room. If it's on the IPO list, it's inpatient. The converse is not true, however. If a surgery is not found on the IPO list, this does not mean that it has to be outpatient. Outpatient surgery can be performed in either ambulatory surgery setting or in a hospital setting or in a doctor's office, which I'm not going to talk about. An ambulatory surgery center, ASC, or same-day surgical center, only accommodates patients who are not expected to require hospitalization. According to the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, ASC-covered surgical procedures do not include ones that generally result in extensive blood loss, require major or prolonged invasion of body cavities, directly involve major blood vessels, are generally considered emergent or life-threatening, or commonly require systemic thrombolytic therapy. CMS has a yearly list of covered surgical procedures for which an ASC can be reimbursed. Outpatient surgery may also be performed in a hospital setting, either in a dedicated outpatient surgery area or in a hospital operating suite. The procedure doesn't establish in or outpatient status. They may be done in operating rooms side by side, outpatient and inpatient. It's not the location. More than half of therapeutic surgeries occur in the outpatient setting. And there are certain procedures which are almost exclusively performed as outpatient surgery, like cataract procedures, arthroscopic knee procedures, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomies, and lumpectomies. 99% of eye procedures are outpatient, 
whereas more than 70% of cardiovascular, respiratory, and urinary system procedures are performed in the inpatient setting. What factors might constitute medical necessity for a procedure being inpatient? The procedure being performed routinely and consistently across regions and health systems necessitates two or more midnights of hospital-based care. Pre-existing complications like sepsis, perforation, abscess, or high risk of post-operative complications or need for ICU services. One or more significant comorbid conditions which can reasonably be anticipated to make surgery and or post-operative care more complex and risky, like bad COPD, precarious heart failure, immunocompromise, a bleeding disorder, or coagulopathy. Anticipated need for coordination of and ongoing care, like pain management, monitoring, or post-procedural studies. And social determinants of health, which might impede appropriate post-operative care and threaten surgical outcomes. So the first thing to do after checking the IPO list is to prospectively assess whether an inpatient admission will be medically necessary. What circumstances can cause an outpatient surgery to have an unplanned hospital stay? If a provider just feels like watching the patient longer overnight, this is neither an observation stay nor grounds for an inpatient admission. There is different verbiage depending on your facility but this is considered extended recovery or ambulatory in bed. Another situation is postoperatively, things are not going smoothly, like the patient is experiencing excessive vomiting or severe postoperative pain. If the complication is not too serious, this could constitute grounds for placing the patient in outpatient status for observation services, OBS, to see if they will declare themselves and need full inpatient admission or if they will recover and be discharged. There may be a post-procedural complication which is too complex or is just expected to be in the hospital longer than a a short observation stay. And these patients could be admitted directly into inpatient status. Finally, a completely different issue crops up, which is not suspected to be a complication from the procedure like a pre-existing comorbidity becomes exacerbated or the patient develops a new unrelated condition coincidentally. The disposition, again, will vary depending on the situation. It can either be OBS or an inpatient admission depending on the circumstances. What cannot be done is prospectively scheduling an observation stay. If the provider anticipates that there is a high risk of requiring hospitalization, the patient should be admitted as an inpatient on the front end. They should never be scheduling OBS. Next week, I will address documentation and coding practices related to surgical procedures and their status. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica. That was an excellent topic for your talkback. Thank you again. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Vereen Steinbach, Lori Ann Bryant, who reported our lead story, and a very special thank you to you, my dear friend, Dr. Erica Reamer, for co-hosting the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcast. And until we meet next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you again, everybody. Have a great week.
Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.